Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode 21 of Crime and Beauty. This is going to be part two of the Sunset Strip Killers. And before we get started and dive back into the story and start the coverage of the murders themselves, um, good news, kind of a follow-up to last week's episode, but Lady Gaga's dogs were recovered, and I actually just got some coffee and had to tie up my French bulldog outside for maybe, I would say, three minutes, not even, and I was so skittish just staring at him, making sure nobody steals him, but um, yeah, again, I'm very happy that everything is has turned out okay. Um, the dog walker, she uses he was shot four times but is surviving and the dogs are all back in her ownership and care which is great news so yeah let's get started again i just wanted to quickly shout out the source that i've used for this series um the sunset murders by louise farr excellent book again could not recommend it enough whether or not you're interested in this case or are you just looking for a great true crime paperback I do think it is out of print, but I found my copy through a bookstore, thrift bookstore that was selling on Amazon. So highly recommend it if you're interested. Carol had been aware that Doug had done more than fantasize about murder when he arrived home one night in late April 1980, covered in blood. There was blood on his blue denim jacket, in his teeth, and all over his hands. Carol took him into the bathroom and told the boys to go back to bed. The next morning, she told Chris and Spike that Doug had been in a motorcycle accident, but they had seen Carol clean Doug's bloodied knife. Nice try, Carol. Carol pretended to believe Doug's story that he had been with a girl in the car when her boyfriend had attacked him. Doug had used his knife against his attacker and narrowly escaped death, and the next day, Carol noticed spots of blood in the Buick. And for me, I'd be pissed if my boyfriend was using my car and getting it all bloodied up. The scene was repeated a week later when Doug told Carol that he'd killed the boyfriend who had attacked him the week before. Carol told the boys that someone had tried to steal their car and Doug had heroically fought off his attacker. Also in late April, Charlene, a 22-year-old sex worker, narrowly escaped death. She had been in the supermarket parking lot on Sunset Boulevard near La Brea Avenue when she saw a man, Doug Clark, in a blue station wagon pull in. As she approached him to see if he wanted sex, she noticed that he was masturbating and began to walk away. He called her back and they agreed that she would give him oral sex for $40, and they drove away together. She refused to get in the back seat with him, though. He said his name was Don or Ron, and Don is actually the pseudonym that Doug often used. He had blonde hair and blue eyes and a mustache. As she lowered her head, she noticed he had a very small penis. Before she could begin, the man held her down and put a knife to the back of her neck. As she struggled to get away, he stabbed her repeatedly. 
Somehow, she managed to get a hold of the knife blade, and they both lay there, neither one able to do anything. He told her that this is your last round, baby, as he pressed his fingers into her windpipe. Barely able to get her breath, Charlene pushed her feet as hard as she could and propelled herself outside of the car. And she lay on the sidewalk bleeding, and the man threw her jacket and shoes after her. Charlene had been very lucky to escape and later identified Doug Clark as her attacker. On the 11th of June, 1980, Janet and Andy Murano were looking for their daughters, Cindy and Gina. The girls had run away from home again. It had become a regular occurrence over the past year since they had moved to Huntington Beach. It was the second marriage for both Janet and Andy, and the merging of their two families had been difficult. Between them, they had six children. Janet had three girls, and Andy had two girls. Cindy Chandler, now 15, and Gina Murano, 16, had done well at their previous school, where they were both popular and enjoyed success. The change of schools had seen the girls' grades plummet, as they spent more and more time hanging out with friends at Huntington Beach. Their parents, devout Christians, had attempted to uphold their parental authority with a firm hand and strict punishments. Apparently, Janet used to make the girls pick a switch from the tree, which she would smack them with. The stepsisters' rebellion deepened, and they were soon skipping school and running away from home for days and weeks at a time. Late that night, Janet and Andy gave up their search and went home, determined they would find the girls the next day. On the same night, according to Carol, she came home from work to find a note from Doug telling her that he had dropped by and would talk to her later. Making the excuse that she needed the Buick to do some shopping, Carol went to his current girlfriend's apartment to swap cars with Doug. Also, just a note of that, I mean, he's seeing other women. It's crazy how Carol will just do anything for this loser. Having her own set of keys, she unlocked the Buick. On the back seat, she found what looked like a duffel bag full of dirty clothing. And when she looked inside, she discovered that it was filled with bloody clothes, a blanket, and paper towels. Forgetting about her plans of shopping, Carol took the bag with her into the Datsun and headed home. On her way, she stopped at a laundromat and washed the clothes, a green tube top, and a little maroon striped dress. The blanket was so bloodied that she threw it, along with the bloodied paper towels, into the trash. The next morning, she tried to contact Doug at work, but wasn't able to speak to him. Her first contact with him was when she called him at his girlfriend's place after 7 that night. When they met up a few days later, Doug told her everything that had happened. Once again, he'd been cruising down Sunset Strip in the Buick on the afternoon of the 11th when he had seen Cindy and Gina sitting at a bus stop. He stopped the car, rolled down the passenger side window, and tried to talk the blonde Cindy into getting in with him. But unwilling to go alone, Cindy convinced Gina to come with her. He stopped the car in a deserted car park and forced Cindy to go down on him. He told Gina to look away, and then he grabbed the gun which was hidden between the seat and the door and shot Gina behind the left ear. As Cindy sat up, he shot her in the head. Neither of them was dead, so he shot them both again. Gina in the head and Cindy in the heart. He pushed them both down onto the floor and drove to a garage in Burbank, which he rented. He arrived there at about 4 p.m. and parked his car across the driveway in front of the garage door. There was no one around, so he covered the bodies in a blanket and dragged them inside. They bled on the floor, and he walked through the blood with his work boots. Suddenly, Gina lifted her arm. Doug freaked out and thought he might have to shoot her again, but she died soon after. 
He laid both the girls out on an old mattress he had on the floor. He cut up the leg of the pink jumpsuit that Cindy was wearing, and he essentially molested both of the women's bodies. I won't go into more details because it's too grotesque. You can look that up on your own. At about 8 o'clock, he left and returned to Carol's apartment to leave her a note. Carol would think of only the fact that Doug had told her and not his other girlfriend about the murders, so somehow she'd been chosen to be his partner. She would have the honor of helping Doug fulfill his fantasies. He went back to other girlfriends' apartments about 10.30, then borrowing her camera, returned to the garage. And when he was finished, he wrapped the girls' bodies in the blanket and put them into the car. He dumped their bodies down the side of an embankment on the forest lawn on-ramp of the westbound Ventura Freeway near the Disney Studios. His girlfriend heard him come home a couple hours before dawn. They were found on June 12th, semi-nude, under some brush by a highway worker. Now, before we continue, there was a passage from the book by Louise Farr talking about how Janet and Andy's hopes had risen for both Cindy and Gina because the entire family was baptized in the spring of 1980, shortly before they were murdered that summer. In that week that they were baptized, they stayed home and were good, but shortly thereafter, they ran away again and... At one point, Cindy had impaled her foot on a shard of glass and had to walk with crutches. And her grandmother spoke to her severely because, of course, at this time, the news was full of Ted Bundy, the Hillside Strangler, Lawrence Bittaker, um, all cases I'll cover in the future. But basically, all the victims were from California beach communities. And Cindy's grandmother told her, maybe this foot will stop you running away. There are monsters out there, Cindy. They'll get you. Cindy looked surprised. Grandma, she said, why would anyone want to hurt me? So sad. And I will definitely be posting pictures of both Cindy and Gina, and both of them are absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. The following Saturday night on the 14th of June, 1980, Carol rang the Van Nuys Police Department, unbelievably. She was put through to Officer Heinlein at Northeast Division's Homicide Office. Carol, using the name Betsy, claimed that she believed her lover was responsible for murdering the two girls. She told him about the clothes she had washed, but they said that it didn't match what the girls had been wearing. When she asked whether one of them had been shot twice in the head, Heinlein would not divulge any details of the crimes. Heinlein and Westbrook, who was listening in on another phone, thought that she was a crank and failed to take her seriously, much to the detriment of future victims. But before Carol could give them any further information, they were cut off at the switchboard. They assumed she had hung up. Later that night, Doug came home and told Carol to watch the news. One of the lead stories was about a man named Vic Weiss, whose body had been found in the trunk of a Rolls Royce parked in the garage of the Sheraton Universal Hotel. Doug claimed that he'd done the killing earlier that day as an initiation into a mafia hit group. To add further credence to his story, he told her that he had not placed the body in the car. On Sunday, Doug suggested that they go for a drive, and Carol told police that he had discussed the possibility that he might have to kill her. He drove to an area near Foothill Boulevard and stopped by a rugged ravine where, he told Carol, he had dumped the body of a young blonde sex worker after he had shot her. It had been on the night that he'd taken the Datsun for a test drive. When the girl saw the gun, she screamed and kicked the gear shift, which is how it came to be broken. He had stripped her, keeping her underpants for himself, and giving the rest of her clothes to an 11-year-old girl who lived in the apartment across from Carol, and had become embroiled in some of Carol and Doug's sexual escapades. This is a really sad story. They actually, um, Louise Farr interviewed this woman who goes by the name Teresa um, in the book, but 
she essentially was molested by both Carol and Doug and groomed prior to that. They basically treated her like a peer and would often engage in sexual relations with her. And it's just awful because she was, of course, later on as an adult when she was interviewed for the book, completely traumatized from the experience. When the recent victim's body was later found, she was identified as Marnette Comer, a 17-year-old runaway from Sacramento who had been working as a sex worker on the Sunset Strip. And here's a quote about Marnette from the book The Sunset Murders. Marnette had been hooking since she was 13 and began running away from home at 14. In January of 1980, her mother had picked her up at a juvenile detention home to take her to the dentist and shopping. That was when Marnette ran away for the last time. A few days after Mother's Day, she had phoned home to say that she had sent flowers. On May 21st, she had phoned again and her younger sister had begged her to return. Marnette had refused and her family had not heard from her again. By now, Carol and Doug were both addicted to talking about murder. Despite the fact that Doug no longer bothered with even the occasional compliment or kind word, Carol still placed herself as a doormat at his feet telling herself that she was a warm, giving person who sacrificed everything for her man. She seemed unable to understand how her controlling and manipulative role of victim only served to feed her abuser's anger. On the 20th of June, Carol went with Doug for their first joint kill. At Hughes Market on Highland Avenue in Hollywood, they saw a blonde woman wearing cowboy boots, a little maroon dress, and a bolero jacket with red hearts on it. Doug called to her, and at first she ignored him, but after a few more attempts to get her attention, she agreed to get in the car. She looked about 17 and said her name was Kathy. Carol was sitting in the back seat with her 25 caliber Raven, or one of her toys, in her purse. She introduced herself as Barbara. The plan was that if Carol was going to go ahead with the kill, she would say, boy, am I having a blast. If she didn't, Doug would get the oral sex that he wanted. When Kathy and Doug had fixed the price at $30, he drove behind the gas station on the corner of Franklin Avenue in Highland. Kathy was not able to give Doug an erection. He looked at Carol and shook his head, letting her know that he didn't want to have her kill Kathy. Instead, he tried to get his own gun, but found that Kathy was in the way. With his left hand, he gestured to Carol to give him her gun, which he did, but to Doug's disgust, she had given it to him pointed in the wrong direction. Aware that something was wrong, Kathy tried to sit up, but Doug shot her, although she did not die instantly. Expecting Carol to panic, he told her to be cool, but Carol was not panicked. She sat calmly in the back seat watching the proceedings with interest. Doug told her to get into the front seat. Kathy's head rested on Carol's lap, bleeding all over her blouse. Oh my god. Using the paper towels Doug gave her, Carol began to clean up the mess. Using Doug's denim jacket to hide Kathy from other motorists, Carol struggled to undress the dying woman. Doug drove onto the Hollywood Freeway, heading north toward the country. They turned off near Magic Mountain Amusement Park. Still in the darkness, they arrived at a dirt road with a stream running alongside it. A mile further up the gravel road, they stopped and pulled Kathy from the car, dragging her for about 20 feet. They left her lying in some bushes, without even being certain that she was dead. They arrived home about five in the morning, and the next day, a Saturday, Doug drove the Buick over to Carol's apartment. She went with him and his other girlfriend's son, who had come with Doug, to a car wash on Van Nuys Boulevard to wash out the wagon. Doug told the boy that the blood was from a cat he had run over the night before and had taken to the vet. 
That night, while at a drive-in with his girlfriend, Doug repeated the cat story to when she had complained that the car smelt of raw meat. Ugh. She became angry that he had taken her son out with Carol Bundy, which who can blame her? This was enough for Doug to decide to end his relationship with this particular woman. He was to tell Carol later of the killing he did that night. He had seen three sex workers together, a black girl, a thin blonde in a pink dress, and another plump blonde. He wasn't able to get any of them in by themselves, so drove on. Coming back after a while later, he found the blonde in the pink dress standing alone. Her name was Exie Wilson, a sex worker from Little Rock, Arkansas, who had reluctantly moved to the area with her pimp boyfriend only a week before. She agreed to go with Doug, and they drove until they found an empty parking lot behind the Studio City Sizzler. While she was face down, Doug shot her in the back of the head, but as soon as she began to die, she bit him. Good for her. Confident that no one would disturb him, he dragged the woman from the car, stripped her, and took a green ring from her right ring finger. His anger with her for biting him was still strong, so he took a knife from the kill bag, a bag that Carol had put together containing knives, paper towels, liquid cleanser, plastic bags, and rubber gloves, and decapitated her. Leaving the body in a pool of blood in the car park, he placed the head in a plastic bag and threw it into the back of the car. Before leaving for home, realizing that the woman's friend may be able to identify him, he went back to where he had picked her up. The other blonde was there waiting for her friend. She got into the car with Doug, unaware that the head of her girlfriend, Exie, was behind her on the floor. Near the Burbank Studios, he stopped the car and pulled out his gun. Dogs in a nearby yard heard her screams and they began to bark. Not wasting any time, he shot her in the left temple, which killed her instantly. He removed her earrings and stole her cash before pushing her from the car. He traveled three miles to 24 West Verdugos Avenue, the new apartment that Carol had begun renting earlier that day. And from there, at 3.08 a.m., he called Carol, who was still living at Lamona Avenue. Three minutes earlier, a policeman had pronounced dead the woman found in the gutter at the Burbank Studios. Her name was Karen Jones. She had moved from Little Rock with Exie and had turned to sex work to support her little boy. Concerned about the third girl who had seen him, Doug returned to the pickup point, but unable to find her, he went back to Carol's apartment, which ultimately saved her life. As Doug and Carol talked about the dead girls, Carol felt an overwhelming psychological intimacy with Doug, and for the first time she felt that they were as one, with a deep rapport, far better than the sexual bond they had shared in the early days of their relationship. The feeling continued as they worried about the possibilities of being traced. Doug had admitted to calling a woman who had known Cindy and Gina, pretending to be a cop but foolishly using his own name. They decided it was too dangerous to keep the Buick and Doug sold it to a co-worker at the Jurgens factory. This is horrible, but Doug and Carol later played with Exie's head at the Verdugo apartment. He'd kept the head in a freezer and shown it to Carol when she dropped off some of her belongings. When she arrived, it was just sitting on the kitchen sink. Showing off, Doug picked it up by the hair and swung it around, bragging to Carol that he had taken it into the shower with him. They kept it in the freezer for a couple of days longer while they thought of how to dump it. Carol bought a treasure chest made of rough wood with brass rings and corners. She brought it back to Doug's apartment and then prepared Exie for the drop-off. With the head still frozen, she made it up with cosmetics. She thought she'd done a good job, but as usual, Doug criticized her. Suddenly, it occurred to him that they could be leaving their fingerprints on the makeup. Carol got the job of washing it all off again with detergent in the kitchen sink. They carefully placed the head inside the chest, 
which they had double-wrapped with two plastic bags. Once it was safely on the back seat of the Buick, they drove through the valley looking for the perfect drop-off spot. Finally, they found a place that they were looking for. It was about a mile west of the Studio City Sizzler where Doug had left Exie's body. And I guess initially he thought of dropping the head at the same place, but realized it was too risky. They found an alley behind Hoffman Street, only a block from a busy intersection. And pulling on the gloves she had worn when she bought the chest, Carol took off the plastic bags and prepared to throw it from the car. Doug hadn't completely stopped the car, so she was unable to throw it very far. They heard the sound of splintering wood as they ran over it with the back tire. Then, with the door still open, a car pulled into the alleyway. Doug turned on Carol in anger, saying she was incompetent. She should have seen the car, and she should have thrown it further. He spent the rest of the night berating Carol for her stupidity and incompetence. Carol sat quietly and listened. So much for the rapport. There's a mugshot of Exie Wilson for sex work in Arkansas before she relocated to um, Los Angeles. And she was only in California a week before she was murdered. But there's something about it. It's just very eerie. Um, you can tell she's a little worse for the wear. She barely has any eyebrows. And apparently um, her top teeth were like dentures of some sort. And later when Detective Orozco was, you know, investigating her death and the possibility that her boyfriend might have been involved, um, they basically had to drive to Arkansas and the mobile home of her mother, Zelma Ammons. And apparently Zelma and her sister Minnie were waiting for them. And they were, according to Detective Orozco, they just seemed like plain country folk, and he felt like a city slicker compared to them. And understandably, they had trouble comprehending what had happened to Exie. Apparently, when she was nine years old, her father had died, and she'd graduated from high school barely able to spell. And she worked as a waitress in a motel, and that was um, two years, and then two years before her death, she met this pimp, Derek Albright, fell in love with him, and turned to sex work. And apparently she was a, a very sassy person, and she had been having trouble with the local police in Little Rock, and that's where her mugshot comes from. But, um, I mean, Karen Jones as well, I mean, she, she did what she needed to do. Um, she was in college, actually, a very smart girl, but became pregnant and had to drop out. Later, she spent time in a shelter for battered women and, again, turned to sex work to support her little boy. So very sad backstories for both of them. On the morning of June 27th, Jonathan Caravello found the box blocking his parking space. He could see that it was a treasure chest of some kind, and he picked it up and brought it closer to the light. Intrigued, he opened it and to his horror found Exie's head wrapped in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt that said Daddy's Girl. He immediately rang the police. And at this point, the relationship between Doug and Carol was continuing to deteriorate. Carol, the eternal optimist, had been certain that living together in their Verdugo apartment would change everything. But once again, the reality did not live up to her fantasies, because Doug was going out more and more with other women. They never had sex anymore, and they bickered constantly. He threatened to pack up and leave frequently. The only time he was interested in any sexual contact was when the 11-year-old neighbor was with them, which is so disgusting. So Carol would bring her over as often as possible. And again, I understand that she was sexually abused as a young child, but she made this choice, and it's disgusting, and it means Carol is just as horrible as Doug. 
Doug had been secretly molesting the 11-year-old neighbor for months now since Carol had first moved in to the apartment opposite hers in Lamona Avenue. While Carol was at work, Doug would take the girl out cruising with him to pick up sex workers. Just before Carol sent the boys away, Doug had the young girl approach Carol about sex. At first, she'd been reluctant, telling Doug that she thought it was disgusting. But she quickly changed her mind when Doug accused her of being jealous. The 11-year-old girl recognized early that Doug was infatuated with her and used her power over him to get gifts and money. She had learned from a previous experience that a man being nice to her was usually a prelude to sexual abuse, which is so sad. Where was her parents? Although Doug and Carol continued to go cruising together, they were unable to find anyone willing to get in the car with them. The news of the Sunset Strip murders had made the sex workers in the area much more careful. They rarely worked alone after that. Everything was pretty much beginning to fall apart for Carol. She phoned her old friend Dick Geist to tell him about Doug and the killings. When he told her to leave Doug, she made excuses as to why she couldn't. Within minutes of hanging up, she called him back and told him that none of it was really true, and it was just a story she was writing, and she was testing to see how believable it was. Her behavior at work had been increasingly erratic, and the other nurses avoided her as much as they could. The standard of her work also dropped noticeably. On July 29th, Carol attempted to kill herself by sitting in the car in the garage and injecting herself with 1,250 units of insulin and 100 milligrams of Librium. She then swallowed 100 milligrams of Librium tablets. She'd previously written Doug a note telling him of her intentions in the hope that he would rescue her, but Doug didn't come. Shocker. As she was becoming drowsy, she drove two blocks to the Gristmill restaurant car park. She awoke temporarily when paramedics arrived. Doug had called them after he'd received a call from the medical center where Carol worked. She had called in to say that she was killing herself and wouldn't be in for work the next day. Carol had been taken to St. Joseph's Hospital in Burbank. She also called Jack Murray, who came to take her home. The next day, she picked up the 11-year-old girl and dropped her at the apartment while she went to see Jack Murray. While she was out, Doug took the girl out cruising again. They picked up a young woman in a black and lavender outfit. They stopped in a secluded place where Doug paid her for oral sex while the young girl sat in the back seat and watched. Doug then dropped the 11-year-old back in the apartment and drove off with the sex worker still in his car. He was later to tell Carol that he shot the sex worker in the back of her head while she was giving him oral sex. He dumped her body near the water towers in the Antelope Valley, but first he lay her in an inert body in the trunk of her car, which was still running, and had intercourse with her. Meanwhile, Carol had met with Jack to ask him to have sex with her, but he wouldn't unless there was another woman with her. Sound familiar? And not knowing anyone else, Carol took the 11-year-old with her the next day to meet with Jack in the back of his van. She let him fondle the girl but wouldn't allow him to have sex with her. That was only for Doug. Carol was appalled by Jack's lust for the girl. With Doug, it had been sweet and wholesome. The young girl had wanted it. With Jack, she saw it as sordid. What is going on with these people? I mean, all of them are just garbage. On August 3rd, Carol again met with Jack. He was at the Little Nashville drinking with a young Australian woman. Carol asked him to come outside with him and showed him the kill bag in the back of the Datsun. She'd already told Jack about the killings before, then realizing her mistake, told him that she was only joking. But she wasn't joking anymore, and she wanted Jack to tell her what to do. He agreed to meet her again when the club closed. Before he walked away, she slipped him a note asking again for sex. She promised that he could have sex with the 11-year-old. Ugh. When he returned to the bar, Jack was noticeably quiet. 
His two friends said that he looked terrified when he told him what Carol had shown him, but laughed it off when they suggested he tell police. The girl he was with left Jack in the parking lot at about 2.30 a.m. and saw Carol get into his van as she drove off. Carol had already decided that Jack would have to die because he knew too much. Doug had told Carol that she was too stupid to pull it off by herself, but she would prove him wrong. So Jack climbed into the back of the van and undressed, leaving his jeans around his ankles and his boots on. As he tried to push Carol's face down, he told her that he wanted to have sex with the young girl. Hearing his words was all Carol needed to make her final decision, that Jack had to die. She told him to lie on his stomach. She pulled her gun out and fired a shot on, into the back of his head. Feeling his pulse, she was surprised that it was still beating. She shot him again, feeling an overwhelming sense of her own power. With a knife, she stabbed him in the back a half dozen times, and suddenly it occurred to her that it would be possible for police to identify the bolts in Jack's head, so she cut it off. When she had finished, she placed his head in a plastic bag and took it home with her in the car. On the way, she called Doug to tell him what had happened. When she arrived at the Verdugo apartment, paramedics were there. Doug claimed that his girlfriend had had an epileptic seizure. Carol believed that she must have overheard her phone call to Doug because the next day she packed her bags and fled to Illinois. Carol nonchalantly told the paramedics that she was a nurse and asked whether she could help, not realizing that she had spatters of blood on her glasses, watch, and blouse. As soon as they put the sedated girlfriend back to bed, Carol and Doug put Jack's lifeless head into a plastic bag and set off to find a suitable place to dump it. Just before sunset, Carol threw the head into one of the trash cans lined up in the back street near Griffith Park. At this point, Doug was beginning to panic. The prospect of getting caught was now a real threat, and he didn't want to die. He began to blame Carol for the predicament he was in, telling her she was stupid for killing Jack Murray. He pointed out to her that cutting off his head might have removed the bullets, but the casings would be found in the van. Carol was close to the edge, popping Librium tablets to stay calm and their relationship had not changed. Killing Jack had not brought Doug any closer to her as she had hoped. He still wouldn't have sex with her. In desperation, she introduced Doug to a girlfriend of Jack's in the hope of three-way sex. Doug and Jack's girlfriend took her bed, and she had to sleep on the floor in Doug's bedroom. She could not understand how, after all she'd done for him and what they'd been through together, that he did not want her as she wanted him. On Saturday night, six days after Jack's murder, Doug and Carol went to the Little Nashville Club as usual at about 10 o'clock. Jeanette was there hoping that Jack would turn up. She had searched everywhere for him all week to no avail and had already suspected that he might be dead. Only a block down the road in Barbara Ann's street, a crowd had begun to form around an abandoned van. Neighbors had called police because of the offensive stench wafting from the vehicle. Detective Roger Pita from the Van Nuys Police Department surveyed the scene, and when he opened the back doors of the van, Jack's body lay on the floor in the back, just as Carol had left it. It was now covered in blisters, bloated and blackened from the heat. Where his head had once been, there was a blood-soaked pillow. There were stab wounds on his back, and his buttocks had been sliced, and there were cuts around the anus. Pita quickly concluded that the murderer was probably a woman. Jack had either just had sex or was preparing to when he was killed. The shell casings were found just as Doug said it would be, but there were no bullets in the body. Without the head, Peta could not be sure whether Jack had been shot or not. Word of Jack's death soon reached the patrons of the Little Nashville. From those who wandered down where the van was parked, Peta learned a great deal about Jack Murray. 
Jeanette had wanted to go to the van, but no one would let her leave, and the police escorted her down to the station. As she was leaving, she heard Carol's high-pitched scream. Carol behaved how she thought people would expect her to, crying and screaming, then lapsing into what she hoped would appear to be a state of shock. As soon as she was able, she told Doug to get rid of the guns. He immediately left the apartment, returning 15 minutes later. Back at the Little Nashville, the police questioned the regular customers and staff, who soon told him of Jack's fear when Carol Bundy had shown him the guns in her car. They also mentioned the girl who had been with Jack when he was last seen. No one knew anything about her other than that she was Australian, a film editor, and carried a knife. Jeanette was questioned at the police station until about 4 a.m., but as she was considered one of the prime suspects, was not given any details about how Jack had died. The next afternoon, as Carol showered alone and Doug and his new girlfriend were together in his shower, the doorbell rang. Carol wrapped a towel around her still-dripping body, and when the ringing was replaced by a loud banging on the door, she opened it to find two detectives. Unsure of what to do, she asked them to excuse her while she put on some clothes. Quickly throwing on a house coat, she hurried to tell Doug. Carol was then taken to the Van Nuys police station for questioning. Feeling that he needed to control this potentially explosive situation, Doug followed her there. He and Carol had already planned their mutual alibi for the 3rd of August, the night Jack was killed. They were to tell police that they'd been home in bed together. Carol changed the story slightly and admitted that she'd seen Jack briefly early in the day. She told the officers the sad story of how Jack had treated her and the money he had stolen from her. She also admitted to having owned two 25 caliber automatics but had sold them. She helpfully gave the police a detailed description of the man who bought them. Doug's new girlfriend told the police about the woman who was with Jack the night he disappeared. Detective Peta knew there was something wrong with Carol and Doug's story, but had nothing to go on. He let them go, but intended to look into their stories more thoroughly. Jack's girlfriend was found and arrested the next day. She told them that she'd last seen Jack with Carol Bundy, who had gone with him in his van who had gone with him in his van. Doug berated Carol all the way home, blaming her big mouth for all of their troubles. He told her that he was leaving the apartment on the first of the next month, and of course Carol was very upset. This was not supposed to happen. Killing Jack should have brought them closer together. He was supposed to be impressed that she had fulfilled his fantasy. Soon after arriving back at the apartment, Doug and his girlfriend went out without telling her where they were going. Carol couldn't stand the way he flaunted his sexual relationship with a new girlfriend right under her nose. At 5.45 p.m., she called her mother-in-law's number. Carmeletta Bundy told Carol that she was planning to fly the boys home on the 20th of August, but Carol told her not to. She told Carmeletta her life was a mess at the moment, but maybe in a couple months everything would be all right again. She spoke to the boys briefly, telling them that she loved them. It would be years before she saw them again. Then she called Dick Geis at 6.10 p.m. to tell him all of the details of the murders and her involvement in them. Geis thought she was making it up as an excuse to call him again, and he told her not to come to Portland to see him, even though she asked. To help her sleep, she took her last handful of Librium tablets. In the morning as she dropped Doug at the Jurgens factory, he verbally abused her relentlessly. By the time she arrived at the Valley Medical Center, she was late for her 7 a.m. shift. At 8.45, Carol rang Dick Geis again to ask whether she could come to Portland. He told her bluntly that he didn't want her to come and there was no way that he wanted to be in a relationship with her again. Carol's response, 
I guess it's all over between us, revealed her total lack of realism in the relationships she had with men in her life. By 10.30, Carol had lost it completely. She walked into the nurse's lounge where her supervisor, Leanne Lane, who couldn't stand her, and the head nurse, Howard Wanoff, were taking a break. As Carol started prattling, Leanne, well used to Carol's ranting about her boyfriend problems, tried to ignore her. But slowly, Carol's words began to sink in, and Leanne was gripped by fear. As Carol feverishly told of the murder she and Doug had committed, Leanne knew it was true. As suddenly as her confession had begun, Carol left the room, muttering that she couldn't take it anymore. She was going home to call police to tell them everything. The two nurses ran to the office and called the police. And within minutes, the upper floors of the building were sealed off and surrounded, but Carol had slipped from the building through the basement where she had gone to get changed. On the way home, she stopped at the Jurgens factory to tell Doug that she was turning herself in. She offered him the rest of her money so he could get away. But Doug had a better plan than running. He called Detective Peta to renounce the alibi he had given for Carol. Doug confessed that Carol had been out the night that Jack was murdered and had returned when the paramedics were still there. He explained to Peta that Carol was very weird. Back at the apartment, oblivious of Doug's betrayal, Carol called information to get the phone numbers of the three homicide divisions. She rang all three numbers, which were all busy. When she finally got through to the Burbank division, she was given another number to call. Thankfully, she eventually got through to Detective Kilgore at Northeast. She told him of all the murders and that she wanted to turn herself and her boyfriend in. Carol wanted to meet him somewhere after she called the Van Nuys and Burbank police. They agreed to meet at 2 o'clock, the earliest time he could get a car. They didn't get to meet, as before she had even hung up, police arrived on her doorstep. Detectives Peta and Langren had rushed to the medical center when the call came through of Carol's confession. When they found she'd already left, Langren went to her apartment while Peta went in to see Doug at work. It was just on 11.30 a.m. when the workers began filing out of the factory to take their morning break. Peta stood watching as Doug Clark approached him, smiling confidently. As they shook hands, Peta took out a pair of handcuffs, placed them on Doug's wrist, and took him to the awaiting unmarked squad car. When they arrived at the Verdugo Avenue apartment two blocks away, the street was filled with police cars. Doug was left in the car with a uniformed officer. He became increasingly agitated as the two detectives stood talking outside the car. In a vain attempt to regain control of the situation, Doug yelled to them a warning that Carol had a 12-gauge shotgun. Langren was already inside, and instead of a shotgun, she had come to the door holding underwear that she claimed belonged to Doug's victims. Once she started talking, she could not stop. As Langren attempted to read her Miranda rights, she babbled right over the top of him. Frantically, she collected as many items of evidence of the crimes as she could. She admitted that she killed Jack because he was an asshole who deserved to die. Carol and Doug were taken separately to the Van Nuys Police Station, where they were held until detectives involved in the Sunset Strip Murders Task Force had arrived. While Leroy Orozco, Rick Jack, Mike Stalkup, and Gary Broda were leaving in a helicopter, Langren read Carol her Miranda rights. She told him that she would remain silent until she had some advice from an attorney. When the task for detectives arrived, Mike Stalkup took the bullet Carol had surrendered back at the apartment, back to the downtown station for testing. As they waited for the results, Broda and Jack questioned Carol while Orozco monitored the interview from outside. She immediately forgot her own plan to remain silent and talked openly about Doug, who she stated did not force her to do anything against her will. In graphic detail, Carol described the murders, her involvement with Jack, 
Doug's sexual fantasies, and his games with the 11-year-old girl. She confessed that she had really enjoyed the killing. And as the interview came to a close, Carol told Brodo that she was sexually aroused by him and wondered if he might be feeling the same. The three detectives all experienced had never met a woman like Carol Bundy. She could give the appearance of a typical suburban housewife one minute, and then almost in the same breath, talk of murder as if it was a harmless pastime. Doug had been kept in a holding cell until nearly 6 o'clock that evening when they took him downtown in an unmarked police car. Doug talked incessantly in the back of the car with Mike Stalkup. He was smiling, cocky, and arrogant. Tired of hearing Clark's soothing, hypnotic voice, Orozco told him to shut up until they got to the station. Carol was booked into Sybil Brand Institute for Women. At the station, they took Doug into an interrogation room, and he agreed to make a statement freely and voluntarily. While someone went to get Doug some cigarettes, they Mirandized him and offered to get an attorney for him. Doug chose to talk without an attorney present, and the proceedings were recorded. He talked for three and a half hours. Orozco opened the questioning lightly, asking for details about Doug's family and history. Questions relating to the case were always followed quickly by non-consequential details to ensure that Doug would remain in his relaxed state, to let him feel as though he were in control and in a superior position. By the end of the interview, Doug had admitted a great deal. He said he'd known the victim, Cindy Chandler, well, basically that he was dating her, and that he'd helped Carol dispose of Jack's head, that he went with sex workers, and he frequented the Sunset Strip regularly. When questioned about his sexual abuse of the 11-year-old, he accused her of seducing him. She was a little bitch, he told them, who would say anything to get a guy in trouble. When they told him that they had a photo album of him and the girl, he paled. It didn't take him long to work out that it had been Carol who'd given it to them. He'd already denied anything but a platonic relationship with Carol, who, he said, was crazy. At 10.20 p.m., Doug signed a consent form for the police to search the Verdugo apartment in his presence. They took a pair of handcuffs and 29 live rounds of ammunition from a drawer next to Carol's bed, stained clothing and carpet fibers, four pairs of Doug's boots, two shotguns, and piles of pornography and bondage magazines. From Doug's file cabinet in his bedroom, Orozco took clipping from the Valley News about Exie Wilson's murder, another pair of handcuffs, and a textbook with a photo of a severed penis and the mouth of a head, which is impaled on a stick. When they returned to the station, Orozco booked Doug into county jail on felony molestation charges. And as he looked through Doug's wallet, he found further material, which Orozco hoped would link Doug to some of the crimes. On a card in Doug's handwriting were a list of phone numbers and the names of Cindy and Mindy. Mindy was the name of the girl who had met Cindy the day before she had died and who Doug had called impersonating a police officer. He also had threatened to kill her at some point as well. Over the ensuing months, the Sunset Strip Murders Task Force worked overtime to obtain all the evidence they would need to charge Doug and Carol with murder. Meanwhile, Doug would tell many versions of his story. He insisted that Carol was setting him up for the murders and that she and Jack Murray had actually committed them. It was a story that had been easy for police to rule out since Jeanette was able to find proof of his whereabouts for three of the murders. However, the evidence against Doug continued to mount. In his rented garage, they found a bloodied footprint, the impression of which had matched perfectly with the soles of the boots Doug was actually wearing when he was arrested. In Carol's Datsun, they found the broken gear shift. There were three holes in the door panel behind which they retrieved a 25 caliber bullet. A seat cover and a cushion on the passenger side were saturated with blood, and the kill bag was in the trunk. 
Two 25 caliber Raven automatic guns were found hidden in the Jurgens factory. One was nickel and the other chrome. The latter gun was linked to all of the known victims except Jack Murray. When the Buick was located, there were bullet holes in the driver's seats and in the back seat. There were two 25 caliber bullets and 25 caliber casings on the floor and a pair of women's black vinyl gloves. Traces of blood found on the carpet on the front passenger side, the right rear seat, and the right rear floor mat were matched to Karen Jones and Gina Murano. Carol's story was further verified when the remains of the woman dumped at the water tower were found on the 26th of August. Two days later, the mummified remains of a woman were found. She was known as Jane Doe 99 and had been the victim whose dump site Doug had shown Carol during one of their drives in July. The bullet that had killed her was a 25 caliber with the same characteristics as that which had killed Jane Doe number 18. The remains of Kathy's body were not found until the 3rd of March, 1981, nearly seven months after Carol and Doug were arrested. Carol was now charged with two murders. Due to lack of identification, Kathy was called Jane Doe 28. She had been shot in the head. And as Carol and Doug awaited their hearings, they both began to write an avalanche of letters. Carol wrote to everyone she knew, justifying her position as a poor housewife who had been driven to the edge. She wrote to Doug, avowing her undying love for him, and even wrote a love letter to Detective Broda, who she was sure was attracted to her. Doug would write letters to many girlfriends declaring his innocence and Carol and Jack Marie's guilt. He was able to continue a degree of influence over Carol through his letter writing, sweet-talking her one minute and then promising to bring her down in the next. He even had a cellmate begin writing Carol so that through him he could direct Carol's actions. It never occurred to Carol that her new friendship was at Doug's instigation. Psychological examinations of Carol were performed by doctors Pollock and Kanjami. It would take five months before they finally made their submission to Carol's defense attorney, Sam Mayerson. They described Carol as a condescending and controlling personality who projected the blame of her own circumstances onto others. She had an average to high IQ, but they believed that her true potential was probably in the superior range. They found that there was no sign of organic brain dysfunction or any indication of gross psychopathology. Her murder of Jack Murray was most likely an explosion of anger, frustration, and resentment over Jack's abuse, betrayal, and rejection. In their opinion, Carol did not qualify for an insanity or diminished capacity defense. Doug's arrogance was so deeply ingrained that he openly despised any figure of authority involved in his case. To his own detriment, he kept insisting on having the right to defend himself. He successfully delayed the legal process for months with his complaints about his defense counsel, Carl Henry. He claimed that Henry was not representing his interests properly, and even before the time of his arraignment had proven such an impossible client that the court released Henry from his obligation to Doug and replaced him with Paul Garagos. Even with a new attorney, Doug continued to refuse to submit himself to his counsel's advice and requested that he be allowed to assist Garagos with his defense. Judge Keene would not give his permission. By the time the trial commenced, Doug had rejected Garagos, who was then replaced by Maxwell Keith. Judge Ringer finally had enough of Doug and his antics and asked that the case be transferred. Throughout the preliminary proceedings, Doug would also make complaints about the legal system and accuse the police of fixing evidence. He claimed that the tapes police made of his voice were fabricated in order to gain positive voice identification from Mindy and Lori Briggs, another contact of Cindy's who Doug had called and harassed. Orozco was accused of planting the shell casing found in the seat of the Buick. It took more than two years for Doug's case to come to trial in October 1982. 
Robert Jorgensen prosecuted the case with Leroy Orozco co-assisting him. Judge Torres was the presiding judge. Doug had succeeded in his request to represent himself with the assistance of Maxwell Keith and was to prove true the adage that a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. No kidding. Although he had learned a great deal about the legal process during his two years of imprisonment, he was no match for an experienced prosecutor such as Jorgensen. Time and again, Doug damaged his own cause with temper tantrums, outbursts, and arguments with the judge. He had destroyed any credibility he may have had in the jury's eyes. Having no real understanding of the intricacies of the legal processes, he left himself and his witnesses open to severe cross-examination and missed many opportunities to weaken the prosecution's case during his own cross-examination. Carol Bundy had appeared as a witness for the defense, but Doug was unable to exert the same level of control over her as he had in the past. Her story of the events up until Jack's murder remained in essence the same as it had in the beginning. Her testimony, combined with the corroborating evidence presented by the prosecution, were enough to destroy Doug's weak defense. The jury began its deliberations on the morning of February 21, 1983, and passed its verdict of guilty the morning of February 28th. At the end of the first day, only two jurors were in favor of acquittal, the majority believing it was an easy guilty verdict. For the remaining five days, they would review all of the evidence presented during the trial. They agreed that Carol Bundy was a credible, if somewhat pathetic, witness who was just one of many women over whom Doug Clark had exerted control. Doug's apparent charm and obvious intelligence had at first taken in some of the jurors, but his behavior during the trial and his abusive treatment of Maxwell Keith had enabled them to see through his facade. All of these issues, along with the evidence concerning the guns and Doug's lies in the courtroom, made it clear to them that Doug was guilty. Their verdict was announced to the courtroom that day. Doug looked at his mother and ex-wife, who were together in the courtroom, and said, Hi, Mom, and winked. The penalty phase of Doug's trial was the opportunity for both the prosecution and defense to present evidence not normally allowed during the trial. It was an important period for Doug as it would determine whether or not he'd go to the gas chamber. Both of Doug's parents were questioned and denied any knowledge of behavioral problems in Doug's early life, which is a fallacy. Gloria Keyes, MD, who had spent over 100 hours evaluating Doug, gave psychiatric testimony. Doug was opposed to her testimony and would jacked over minor details throughout the one and a half days she was on the stand. Keyes described Doug as narcissistic, manifesting itself in grandiosity, putting other people down, and having a shallow capacity to relate to others. He also had what she termed antisocial personality traits, which included impulsivity, social norm deviation, and job performance problems. Doug had very low self-esteem, but a strong denial that there was anything wrong with him. She diagnosed him as having a personality disorder, a number of psychosexual disorders, and a shared paranoia. Confirming Key's diagnosis, Doug insisted that he'd come to the stand to counter Key's testimony against this counsel's advice. During his testimony, Doug expressed his belief in his own superiority over anyone who had been in a position of authority during his life, including the lawyers in the courtroom. Jorgensen knew that with the right questions, he would let Doug talk himself right into the death penalty, and he was right. On February 16, 1983, the death penalty was handed down for six counts of murder. While still on death row, Doug married a heavyset woman by the name of Kelly Keniston. She would publicly protest her husband's innocence, and Doug would continue to use every legal avenue available to avoid execution. 
On the 2nd of May, 1983, the day that Carol Bundy was to go to trial, she withdrew her not guilty by reason of insanity plea and pled guilty to two charges of first-degree murder. By doing so, she escaped the gas chamber and was instead sentenced on the 31st of May, 1990, to two consecutive 25 years to life terms in state prison, plus an additional two years for the illegal use of a gun. It was the maximum possible sentence, and her first eligible parole date would have been in 2012. She was transferred to California Institution for Women at Frontera, and she would continue to support Doug in his fight to prove his innocence, even though he would continue to discredit her. In 1990, she handed over all of her legal and psychiatric files to Doug's lawyer to help him do so. When asked why she still wanted to help Doug, she would say that she still liked him and could not, although could not say why. On December 9th, 2003, at the age of 61, Carol died in prison from heart failure. And as of 2021, Doug Clark remains on California's death row. He's currently 72 years old. And for today's Something Beautiful, I've picked Patchology's Mood Patch Happy Place Eye Gels. They are these super cute pink um, eye gel masks that you can put on. They're made with an uplifting aroma of rose and are tea-infused eye gels, which deliver much more than just antioxidants. They help brighten under your eyes and boost your mood in 10 minutes flat. They contain antioxidant-rich hibiscus, skin-softening coconut extract, and skin-conditioning lotus flowers. And they're just super, super cute. Basically, you just take a pair of the eye gels put on to clean under eye area for five minutes or longer if you'd like. And then right after, you discard them and massage the remaining serum into your skin. And I recommend putting them in the fridge you can get them a lot of different places, including on their website. I believe they also sell them at Anthropology, and I'm sure on Amazon and other places. Highly recommend. I'm a big fan of Patchology in general, but check those out. The Mood Patch Happy Place Eye Gels. everyone thank you so much for joining me on this adventure into the sunset strip murders i know that they there were some pretty rough details in there so thanks for hanging through them um, i would love your comments and feedback feel free to email me at crime and beauty podcast at gmail.com you can find more details on facebook at crime and beauty podcast instagram crime and beauty dot podcast and you can listen on podbean at crime and beauty dot podbean dot com spotify google amazon apple all the things and until next time thanks for listening and stay beautiful